Shots of Jesus. I want to thank my dear friend, Dr. David Capes, for starting us last week with his uh, uh, Snapshots of Jesus as he took us into the Gospel of Matthew, where we'll be today. But before we do that, we had an Old Testament speaker at the library last night, Dr. Danny Carroll Rodas, who's right here. Would you stand up, please? Teaches at Wheaton, but he is... Uh, uh, half of his lineage is from Guatemala, and so he is as fluent in Spanish as he is English, and he did our Spanish lecture last night. So last night, once a year, we try to do a library event that's entirely in Spanish to minister to the, uh, those who are principally Spanish speakers in, in a language in which they're most comfortable. And so we had uh, uh, Dr. Rodas do that last night. I'm honored that he's here, but he's also an Old Testament scholar, has written a commentary on Amos, I believe, and, and perhaps another commentary as well. So I'm going to go Old Testament for just a moment. Do you remember this guy? This is a guy named Charlton Heston. He was born in Egypt. Oh, I'm thinking probably about, uh, I'm a late Exodus guy, so probably about 3,300 years ago. And uh, they uh, uh, raised in Pharaoh's household. Uh, I do hope you remember Moses uh, because Moses is a pretty important fella. If you were following uh, the the Jewish rabbi, I guess would be the right term, the Jewish rabbi from the Middle Ages, Maimonides would give you a number of different tenets of Judaism. And one of the tenets of Judaism, as put out by Maimonides in in the, the medieval times, was that Moses was the prophet. That doesn't mean there weren't other prophets, but the guy was Moses. That's the way of Judaism uh, as it was being practiced within that recognized part of Judaism. And I single that out because Matthew itself was written, I think, by a Jewish fella. Um, Peter, Paul, Jewish fellas. So think about Moses for a moment. But remember, at the end of the Torah, in Deuteronomy, the last book, which actually isn't just the end, I mean, chronologically, it's speeches and stuff. But if you look at it, the following comment is made by Moses to the people, the Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now that's a pretty big deal to raise up a prophet like Moses. Think about Moses for a moment. Moses heads out into the wilderness. After he slays the Egyptian, he goes on the run, he goes out into the wilderness, he uh, gets hitched while he's out there. He's taking care of his father-in-law's flocks. You can read in Exodus 3, while Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, it's not Jethro Bodine, Becky, different Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, came to Horeb, to the mountain of God. So Moses goes into the wilderness. It's while Moses is in the wilderness that God appears to him of sorts, 
in a bush that's burning but not consumed. And in the process, God commissions Moses and says to Moses, I want you to go to to Egypt. I've heard the cry of my children and, and I need you to go lead them out of bondage. Moses was a reluctant prophet leader. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? But God spoke to Moses. God commissioned Moses with a very important mission. A mission of leading the people out of bondage. Now, that's not the only thing we know about Moses. Another salient point worth remembering from the movie is when Moses descends with the commandments. Moses goes up on the mountain. The people are down around the foot of the mountain. But Moses ascends. God gives Moses the commandments. God says to Moses, you're to speak to the people of Israel. And you're to say, and he starts filling in all the blanks. Then he gives to Moses when he'd finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And so Moses, he's not the law author, but he is the law giver. God authors the law. But Moses is the conduit for the law to the people. So Moses is worth remembering. We should remember that there's going to be a prophet raised up like Moses from among the brothers. But when the the Torah, when those first five books of the Old Testament were put together in their final form of sorts or somewhere after the death of Moses, we have this additional line at the end of the, the, the Torah for us. And the line says, there's not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And Israel, that is non-Messianic, is still awaiting the prophet who will be like unto Moses. But I say Israel, the Jews that are non-Messianic, because those that are Messianic have seen that prophet. And that is Jesus. He is Messiah. He is anointed as prophet as well as priest, as well as king. And being anointed as prophet, he is one like Moses in a sense. But, you know, I missed last week. Becky and I were gone. I hate being gone. I hated being gone last week because I wanted to be here to hear David's message. But I also loved being gone. I mean, look, I got to be candid. You guys are great. It gives me joy to stand up here and look out and see you people. It really does. But do you know who I was seeing last Sunday? That's right. Grandbabies. I got to see the twin girls. Now they're identical. They're just like each other. 
but they're also different. They're similar, but distinct. <clears throat> I'm feeding them. I, Gracie left me and told me to feed them squash. Now this is Abigail. You see the tear in her eye? She no likes squash. This is Lydia. She eats anything. So I quit feeding them squash and got watermelon out. Now Abigail does like watermelon. She's doing quite good. She likes to rub it on her nose and her head. They're similar but distinct. And I give you that because it gave me great joy, but also because it gives a, an illustration. It's not Moses coming back. It's someone like Moses. Similar in some ways, distinct in some ways. And so that brings us to the Gospel of Matthew. And I want us to look at some snapshots out of Matthew with this theme in mind today. And I'm going to be looking at what we would call the Sermon on the Mount. But remember how Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. Moses is in the wilderness on the run from the law. Jesus goes to the wilderness, but he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Both of them have the wilderness experience before the commissioning, in a sense, or the ministry that God's put them to. Similar, but distinct. You know, Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage? He was a reticent prophet, if you will. Not so Jesus. Jesus, after he is in the wilderness, begins to preach willingly, purposefully, gladly. It was his calling. It was his purpose. And so Jesus is, is a, a willing prophet, if you will. Similar, but distinct. If you go back and you look at Moses... The Lord says to Moses, you're to speak to the people of Israel and you're to say, blah, 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 blah. And then he gives them the two tablets on Mount Sinai and Moses goes down and starts telling the people. Actually, first time he goes down and chews them out for the golden calf, throws the tablets, has to get new ones and all. But ultimately, goes down there and tells them all the stuff he's supposed to tell them, right? Jesus sees the crowds and goes up on the mountain and he sits down and his disciples come to him. And he opens his mouth and teaches them. So again, you've got someone who's a prophet of God who's teaching the people the, 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 the ethics of God, if you will, from the mountain. But they're similar and distinct. Now, if you go to Israel or you've been to Israel, you might have gone to where they uh, like to tell you as a tourist that the Sermon on the Mount happened. We don't really know. 
And if you're reading the Greek carefully in Matthew, it's not real clear. Now, I've, I'm saying this very hesitantly. David Capes is writing a book right now. He's commissioned to write a book on Matthew, and he's grading my paper. Now, I have not cleared this with him, and he could say I'm dead wrong, but he'll do it privately, and you'll never know it. <laughs> but as I read the Greek, maybe that's the right way to say it. As I read the Greek... Uh, it's not even clear that this Sermon on the Mount that Matthew's recorded is just all at once on one hill. But, but he's in the hills. He's in the high hills above Galilee as he's teaching. So I don't want to discourage tourism on that spot, but, but there's, there's not like a big X, Jesus stood here, that was there hundreds and hundreds of years later when, I don't know if it's Constantine's mother or whoever it was, was over there picking out tourist sites. And I'm a little bit jaundiced because I'm a lawyer, and I do recognize that there are ways we can authenticate sites, but there are also ways where they can become a, a tourist attraction of sorts. So I don't, I don't know on this, but be that as it may. If we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we are going to see three things. We're going to you see more than that. Three things I'm talking about. I want to talk about some similarities between what Jesus does and what Moses does. I want to talk about some distinctions between what Jesus does and what Moses does. And then I want to ask the question, why? So that's your roadmap. That's what we're going to do in the next 30 minutes. And then I'll uh, cut you loose. Similar. Let's just put it into context and start in the beginning. Jesus sees the crowd, he goes up on the mountain, and when he sits down, his disciples come to him, and he opens his mouth, and he teaches them, saying, that's what Moses did. Moses on Mount Sinai takes what God has given him, he opens his mouth, and he teaches them. God says to Moses, go say this to the people, tell the people. God doesn't say, take the tablets down there, form lines, and have everybody come up and read the tablets, tell them there's going to be a test on it. And the tablets ostensibly just contained the Ten Commandments. The instructions that Moses had to tell the people were much deeper and, and, than, than just those ten. And so you've got a, 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 something that's, that's very comparative here. Now, let's keep going. Jesus begins to teach them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed. This word blessed, makarioi is the form of it here in the, the Greek because it's plural, but makarios is the Greek word. And it's an interesting Greek word. It's a Greek word that if you look it up in a, in a dictionary, you'll be told to think of a semantic range of meaning around ideas of pertaining to being fortunate or happy. It's tied generally to circumstances as well. So you're viewed as being fortunate or you're viewed as being happy because of circumstances. It's not just the Greek word for blessed. Eulogeo is that Greek word typically. And it's not that. It's a word that, that's got kind of this, 
happy, fortunate, and it's a tough word to translate. I mean, you don't read happy are the poor in spirit because it's not really happy in our happy sense. You're going to see one in a moment where Jesus says, uh, uh, makarioi uh, are the, the ones who are mourning. Well, you can't be a happy mourner. So happy doesn't quite work. Blessed comes close. Blessed is the way uh, an Old Testament word is, is translated in Psalm 1.1. Um, uh, it it's, uh, uses in the Septuagint, makarioi, uses the same Greek word to translate a Hebrew word, but it's not baruch, the Hebrew word for blessed. It's ashni, I think, is ashni, is, uh, or something like that is the word. Um, so so it's, it's, how do you translate this? Well, if you're looking at it, if you're looking at the Greek and you look at it pertaining to humans, how many of y'all are human? It looked like that to me up here. Um, of humans, it's generally, cons- it, it, it can be found to, to, to be considered as a privileged recipient of divine favor. Okay. So, Makarios is someone who is a privileged recipient of divine favor? All right, I can see that in certain usages of the word, but what is Jesus talking about here? So there was a New Testament Matthew scholar who died 10 years ago or so, uh, R.T. Dick Francis. And R.T. Dick Francis says the following. Makarisms, that's what he's calling Makarios, uh, the, the, the Greek word, the, the blesseds, the happy fortunates, whatever, he says are essentially commendations, congratulations, statements to the effect that the person's in a good situation. Sometimes it's even an expression of envy. Oh, gee, I wish I was there. And he says the same or the sense of congratulation and commendation is perhaps better conveyed by happy, but this term has two psychological connotations. Happy sounds like you're talking about yeehaw. Okay? Makarios doesn't have that a person feels happy. Because you can be blessed, like when you're mourning, and you don't feel happy. Happy's not the right word for it. So he goes on to say fortunate, gets closer to the sense, but it's got an inappropriate connotation of luck. Like, you know, hey, I'm fortunate. Well, that just sort of sounds like I was lucky. And this doesn't, this isn't luck. All right, how else does he sort and jumble through this? Congratulations to would convey much of the impact of a macarism, but perhaps sounds too colloquial. Well, I'm from Lubbock, Texas. There is nothing wrong with sounding colloquial. So I am fine with that. Congratulations. Congratulations to the poor in spirit. Congratulations to. Then he's got this comment. I don't know if anybody from Australia is watching 
or maybe you're from Australia here, the Australian idiom, good on you, is perhaps as close as any to the sense, but it wouldn't communicate in the rest of the English-speaking world. It doesn't to me. And then he ends this section by saying, my favorite translation is the traditional Welsh rendering of the Beatitudes, Gwynebud, literally, wide is their world. An evocative idiom for those for whom everything is good. Well, I'm sorry. I have too many friends who have different color skin than white. And I don't even like that. White is their world? That seems mildly out of step with 80% of the world's population. An evocative idiom for those for whom everything is good. Beatitudes are descriptions and commendations of the good life. So, I think that I might urge you to think of this in very colloquial terms. I would like to give the Lubbock translation of Makarios. The Lubbock translation? Thumbs up. Thumbs up. May not feel good, but it's going to be okay. God's got it. You going to make it? Thumbs up. You miserable? Yep. You got faith? Yep. Is this the way you'd have written the script? Nope. But I know it's going to be okay. Thumbs up. So in that spirit, let's look. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Patokoi. The patokoi, the poor in spirit. Now, patokoi in the Greek... It pretty much means poor, as in not a lot. But this is talking about poor in spirit. It doesn't mean you don't have a quantity of spirit. It's talking about uh, a, a range of things. And I think most of us know poor in spirit in the sense of being down and out and things like that. But I wonder if there's not a nuance to this that we're missing if we just look at it that way. And so I want to go back to a way it's used in 2 Samuel 22:28, And I say it's used because the, uh, I'm looking from the Greek Septuagint, which in, in Jesus' language here in the Sermon on the Mount, he quotes from the Greek Septuagint, over and over again. Now that's if you believe that Jesus may have been teaching this or, or producing this in Greek. Uh, I, I happen to think that he did, at least the Beatitudes in Greek. But, but um, uh, regardless, I could be dead wrong, and I know that's real speculative, but Peter Williams says it, and so that's good enough for me. Um, I, I would take a step further, though, and say even if Jesus didn't, Matthew's clearly got it into Greek, and he's using the Septuagint with that language as he's translating it. So with that in mind, look at this passage that uses that same word, that same ptokoi, and it's 2 Samuel twenty-two twenty-eight. It reads as follows. You save... A patokoi people. Saved by the word is, is the, the root of that in Hebrew is Jesus' name. Not worth missing here. 
You save a humble people, but your eyes on, are on the haughty. Right? The Hebrew word there is, is high up. You know, people, who, we, we say your nose is in the air. It's people who are high up were considered haughty, you know, thinking there's something high up. God, it says your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. It is not a strange biblical concept that we are to be a people of humility. And that's a struggle. I am, I, 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 mom, do you remember sending me an email of little one-liners? They may have come from Carol, I don't know, but mom sends me these things periodically that are pretty funny. And one of them said, my therapist said my narcissism is causing me to misinterpret social situations. Dot, dot, dot. I'm pretty sure she was hitting on me. (laughs) We are naturally a narcissistic people. We naturally, our natural bent for most people is me, me, me. And so when we interact with other people, it's very tempting, very typical, very much a struggle. We want to impress people. We want to come off good to people. And yet, Jesus is talking about someone And biblically, there's something that that says, we don't need to be the arrogant, the haughty, the people who think there's something special. James, the brother of Jesus, said it this way, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he'll lift you up. That's just challenging. But I want to tell you, being humble, thumbs up. Jesus continues, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Now, this is one of these passages where the context is pretty important. You never want to just read the first half of these uh, Beatitudes. You got to read the second half. So you don't want to just read, blessed are those who mourn. That's that's not only senseless, that's, that's wrong. If there's not some reason to be thumbs up. And the reason is there's comfort to be had. They shall be comforted. And the comfort here is the comfort that comes from the Lord. So if you go to like Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. It gives you a reason for this comfort. And I think is clearly in the mind of Jesus as he's speaking. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me because the Lord's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn. See, that's what Jesus was here to do. That's part of the function. 
And as Jesus has ascended to the Father, he has sent another helper in his stead, the Holy Spirit, who is here to comfort those who mourn. And as we are the body of Christ, and someone is hurting and mourning, it is our responsibility to comfort those who mourn. And in that way, those who mourn, they may not be happy, they may not be joking, they can say it's going to be okay. They can live with it being okay. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I don't want to go through all of these because this isn't a class on the Sermon on the Mount, but I want you to get a flavor for the fact that just as Moses goes up and teaches the people, in the same way Jesus goes up and teaches the people. And he's teaching them things that are very Old Testament concepts. So with that in mind, we're going to finish the Beatitudes briefly with this. I'm going to deal you some cards out. There are eight and a half Beatitudes. Some say there are nine. Some say there are eight. Luke's only got like four. But, but in Matthew, we got somewhere, I'm going to say eight. Because eight follow the same format all the way through. First, now here's, here's what happened. Becky and I and our kids were in Israel one time, and we went uh, to this site, uh, and we had all five of our kids while we were there this time. And um, I asked our kids, I said, okay, so Jesus does the Sermon on the Mount somewhere around here. And he's got these Beatitudes. So we're going to play like a card game, sort of. I'm going to give you what you get, and you tell me which cards you want. So we got eight of them. We got the kingdom of heaven. We got being comforted. We got inheriting the earth. We've got being satisfied. We've got receiving mercy. We've got seeing God. We've got being called sons or daughters of God. And we've got the kingdom of heaven. Which one, if you could pick one, would you say, that's what I want? So I want you to do this. I want you internally. You don't have to tell me, Miss Carolyn, till later. I want you. <laughs> no, she just does that to wake up Hank. Um, I want to know which of these, if you could only pick one. Now, the good news is you can have all of them. But if one of them was your goal today, which one would you go for? Kingdom of heaven? Then you need to find humility. You need to accept and turn to the Lord as you're down and, and, and let him handle the, the struggles and the difficulties that weigh heavily on you. You want to be comforted? Then you need to spend your time mourning to the Lord because he's the one who's going to comfort you. Don't mourn apart from the Lord. Mourn into the Lord and let him comfort you. You want to inherit the earth? Someone says, well, that sounds like the temptation that Jesus had in front of him. No, 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 no. You got to remember, this is biblical stuff using biblical language. So this is like Psalm 37, 11, to put this into sense to see if you might be interested in this one. 
Let me flesh it out a little bit. Psalm 37, 11. The meek shall inherit the earth. Ha'eretz, the land. And delight themselves in abundant peace. Now, Hebrew poetry is recognizable for a number of reasons, but perhaps chiefly by its parallel structures. Sometimes it means that it's progressive. Sometimes it's opposite. Sometimes it's repetitive. This is one that is repetitive. The meek shall inherit the land is talking about them delighting themselves in abundant peace. You, you, we live in a, an era of, um, in the United States of America where if you inherit a piece of land, it's yours. No questions asked. But any land type thing you possessed back in antiquity was always open to being challenged. It was being open to being challenged by a, a kingdom that was stronger, a marauding tribe. Heavens, a, a, a local landowner who had power in the courts. And, and so to, to inherit, to, to actually have it, to, to own and to possess it, means to some degree you're at peace. And so when we read this idea of inheriting the earth, it's, it means kind of, it, it includes this concept of being at, at peace. Okay? So you want to inherit the earth? Be meek. Price is a gentle. Think of it like that. Not Casper milk toasty meek, but, but gentle. Be gentle. Well, you think, no, the way you inherit the earth is by slamming people. That's not what Jesus says. That's not the way he taught on the mountain. You want to be satisfied? Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus will elucidate and flesh this out later on, and we'll get to it at a later time. But you want satisfaction in this world? Crave God's righteousness, not things. You want to receive mercy? Be merciful. You want to see God. Uh, uh, confessions here. There are two of these that really jump out at me. Two of these that I've, I've spent a lot of my life trying to find. And this is one of them, to see God. To see God, be pure in heart. Isn't that crazy? Purify my heart, O Lord. Be pure in heart. Remember, by the way, in Hebrew, lev, the word for heart, isn't referencing Valentine's Day emotions. That was the guts. That was the bowels. That was, you felt that in your stomach. Heart in the Hebrew anatomy was where you did your thinking. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. It's talk, that, they thought that's where your thoughts were. And I will tell you, you rip someone's heart out, they don't think anymore. 
We know anatomically some other reasons for that. We associate it with the brain. But to the Hebrew, so when Jesus says be pure in heart, he's talking about how you think. Don't pour garbage into your brain. Don't live in a fictional world in your brain. Don't create your own metaverse. The other one of the two that really cries to my heart, personally, is to be called a son of God. Who gets that? The peacemakers. Peacemakers. That may sound funny coming from a guy who makes a living out of suing people into the dirt. But it sure beats uh, attacking them with a sword, (laughs) which is how they used to settle their disputes. We get to be a bit more civilized as we seek justice. Uh, No, we want to be peacemakers. We always want. Don't get me wrong. You know, you go back to World War II and you look at it, and I'm not a historian by trade. Uh, I'm not a political scientist by trade. And I know to some degree history is written by the victors. I understand all of that. But I still can't read it without thinking that the appeasement strategy that Chamberlain and others had towards Hitler when he started his invasion of Europe... encouraged him to go further and 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 there is a time where the greatest peace can be made through a resolute use of force and i have the greatest respect for anyone who has served in our armed forces if you are out there and you or someone in your family or someone you're close to has served in the armed forces i and everyone else in my mind owes you a debt of gratitude A debt of gratitude. Because sometimes to keep the peace, you've got to win the battle. You've got to win the war. And I recognize that. If you're a police officer, heavens, I pray you never have to draw your gun. But sometimes you have to in the name of peace. So this isn't some Pollyanna view. But there's a difference between that and the way we treat each other. The way we forgive each other. The way we try to bring peace. And the only time to use war and the only time to use force is to bring a greater peace. You want to be a son of God? Be a peacemaker. Now, question. Who's the preeminent firstborn one among no others like Son of God. What was his name? Jesus. Yeshua. My buddy Rick told me one time, Rick's Jewish, Rick said, you know, the biggest argument against Yeshua being the Messiah is when the Messiah comes, he's supposed to bring peace. We don't have peace in this world. And I said, yeah, but I got it in my life. I have a peace that passes understanding that's been brought to me by the Son of God. He's made peace in my life and he's made peace between me and those I'm around. 
And the only places where peace doesn't exist are the places that haven't accepted and been permeated and been brought under the lordship of Jesus. If you're under the lordship of Jesus, you're promoting peace. If you've got part of you that's not promoting peace, but is promoting discord and disfavor and and not for the ends of peace, you need to get that under the lordship of Jesus. And then we get kingdom of heaven. This is twice on this one. This one comes again for those who are persecuted for righteousness. They get the kingdom also. So these are similarities. These are areas where Jesus is teaching uh, uh, the people from the mountain like Moses did. But there's some distinctions between the way Jesus taught and the way Moses did. And Matthew underscores those distinctions for us. As we get a little further down in Matthew 5.21, you'll see this. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You've heard, this is akuo, like acoustics, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And that, it said that. Do you know where it said that? Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 13, in the English, says, you shall not murder. Now, the Greek version of the Ten Commandments has a little different numbering to it. They're kind of ordered a little differently. But if you go back to the Greek, the Greek that Jesus is quoting here, ooh, I can't see it up close. Yeah, phonousis, all right? Here's the Greek in the Septuagint. He quotes it exactly. By at least our copies of the Septuagint, we've still got extant. He quotes it precisely. So Jesus is quoting what Moses has put out to the people as translated by Jewish scholars before Jesus' time. He's quoting the Ten Commandments there. But Jesus takes it a step further and says, but I say to you, you shouldn't even be angry with your brother. Wow. Similar, but distinct. You know, Paul says in Ephesians 4.26 that you're to be angry, but sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Go make it right if you're angry. And um, uh, that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus continues to say, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift before you go to the altar. Get reconciled. Don't let the, the sun go down on his anger. Don't let it go down on your anger. Don't let it go down on her anger. Reconcile. Peacemakers. Look at Matthew 5, 27 through 28. You have heard... That it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Epithemiomai, isn't that it? Um, Epithemiomai is this form of it here. 
it's, it's an intense desire. Everyone who looks at a woman with an intense desire don't commit adultery? By the way, that's in Exodus. <laughs> that's verse 14, immediately after don't commit murder in the English. But it skips up in the Septuagint. It's verse 13 in the Septuagint. And it says it the same way. Exact same. You can look letter by letter. Accent mark by accent mark. Smooth breathing by smooth breathing. Exact same. But Jesus says, I'm taking it a step further. I'm saying same thing, similar, but distinct. Don't even look at a woman with lustful intent. He's saying God's concerned with more than simply the externals. He's concerned with what's going on in here. See, right and wrong, being godly, being righteous, being sinful, being unrighteous, those aren't simply to help society get along. Oh, don't get me wrong. I'm sure I could get Dr. Rodas up here to talk to us about Amos. And he could tell us how the, the um, injustices that were so prominent at the time of Amos. The sinful injustices were causing society to disintegrate. And one of the valid reasons for Moses' law is to regulate society so it functions well. And it's important that I not commit adultery because it, it would tear it the, the fabric of the family. But Jesus says it's not simply what's happening in the community around you. It's not simply what's happening to the nation. It's not simply what's happening to your family. It's what's happening to you. And so he takes it a step further because he's concerned about you and me on an individual basis. You've got it again. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. <laughs> it's interesting. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You have heard you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, you look it up under Leviticus 19.18 that he's quoting, and all it really says is love your neighbor. It doesn't say hate your enemy. But I think it's fair to understand that what Jesus is saying, you've heard it, part of it's from the Old Testament, but part of it's how that's been taken to you. And if you look at it in the Greek... You can get the love your neighbor, and it's exactly in the Septuagint what it is here. Jesus is quoting the Septuagint here, but the hate your enemy part is not in there. Miso is the, the Greek verb for hate. And let me give you a range of meaning for it. To have a strong aversion to. To be disinclined to, to disfavor, to disregard in contrast to preferential treatment. It doesn't mean what we typically think it means. I hate you. 
it, it, think of it as, um, I do not regard you as highly as I do other people. I mean, when Jesus calls upon his apostles or his disciples, his followers, and says, if you don't hate your mom and father in your home, you, you're not following me. Well, he's not saying hate them. He's saying, don't, don't, family does not trump faith. Look, if you're thinking about following Jesus and you decide, ah, I don't want to do it, I don't want to upset my family. Well, let's just be real blunt about it. Your commitment's to the Lord first. And if it upsets your family, let's pray for your family to accept the Lord as well. And the best way you can do that is by accepting the Lord and following him and showing a life of loving commitment to him that transforms you and makes the rest of your family say, what makes him or her so different? So what they were doing is they would love their neighbor, but they wouldn't think so highly of their enemy. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You've got to love your enemies. You've got to pray for them. You've got to care for them. You see, you've got some similarities, but you've got some distinctions here. And I want to ask the question in closing, why? Well, one reason is uh, Jesus is the law author. He's not simply the conduit for the law. Jesus is the law author. It's interesting, Matthew 7 says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. He was teaching them as the one who had authority, not as their scribes. You go back and read what rabbinic teaching was back in the day, and it'd be, well, Rabbi so-and-so quotes Rabbi so-and-so who quotes Rabbi so-and-so who believes this, or Rabbi so-and-so believes this because Rabbi so-and-so said this to Rabbi so-and-so. And Jesus is not that. You read it here. Here's what I tell you. You read it here, let me explain it. You read it here, let me explain it. You read it here, let me explain it. And that blew the people away. Because Jesus had the authority to say it. But I'll go a step further. And I'll say part of this is because he really is concerned with more than the externals. And he's bringing a level of understanding that ties in well with what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Where Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that, that what we're called to as believers is something beyond just do's and don'ts of behavior. He says, I appeal to you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Don't be like everyone around you. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So that by testing you may discern what's the will of God. What's good and acceptable and, and complete and whole and perfect. This is, what, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying God wants to transform you. This is how Jesus brings us inner peace. He's tinkering with your machinery if you'll let him. He's rewiring your brain if you'll let him. 
He's disciplining your thoughts if you'll let him. He's transforming your world if you'll let him. All right, those are the three things. Here's your points for home and we'll be done. First of all, I want to listen to Jesus. I'm really excited about this study because I really want to hone in and pay attention to this teacher of authority. This is God. We're getting first layer information here. We're getting insight to scripture that's, that's beyond what, what humans come up with. And then as I live my life, I want to choose wisely. I, I, I want to live a life where I grow before the Lord. I don't want to just be a Christian in name only. I don't want it to be just some label. I really want to walk in that walk that transforms me and transforms those around me. And and, and I I know that that means I got to work on the inside. It's not merely don't touch. It's think about where you put your hands. And so I need to work on the inside too. Because that's where the work starts. Make sense? Okay. Let me bless you in the name of Jesus and we'll be done. And I'll see you next week, God willing. Uh, Father, in Jesus' name, I ask you to pour out your blessings on all who hear this. Father, may your spirit tug at ours to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. To remind us of these things. To give comfort to those who need comfort. To minister to those who need ministering in ways that draw us out of our self-centeredness and into a focus on you. That's our desperate prayer and plea. We hunger and thirst for that righteousness of yours, Father, in your kingdom. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and teacher. Amen. Amen.